Hi, it's Graham here again. Uh, this is a little episode I'm doing myself. I'm not going to have any guests today. And um, people have been asking me to explain a little bit more about heart-shaped decisions. So I thought I'd do a podcast episode to speak more about how I came up with the idea of uh, heart-shaped decisions and where it all came from, really, because it just came to me in September 2019 that uh, most of the big decisions that I'd made in my life that had been positive decisions were made with the heart. So where did I learn that from? Where did I learn how to make decisions? And been giving that quite a lot of thought over the last few weeks, really, because people have been showing an interest, which is great. And um, if I'm honest, I really didn't learn very much positive in the first 17 years of my life. Growing up in a very strict church, it was all very much about following rules. And if you followed the rules, you would go to heaven. And, you know, it wasn't very much about what life was going to be like here. You just had to follow the rules, go to church every uh, every evening and five or six times on a Sunday and not do a huge amount of things that you really wanted to do. And so, you know, I found myself making that heart-shaped decision at the age of 17 to leave that behind and go off in search of, I knew not what exactly I was going off in search of, but I knew that I couldn't stay where I was. And so that was the heart-shaped decision, although I wouldn't have said that at the time. For me, it was just a survival thing, really, because I knew that I didn't want what my family's church, that all my family was in, pretty much. I didn't want what they had to offer. So I went off to find what I did want, and I didn't know what that was for quite a long time. And I made I made some mistakes, and uh, you know, along the way. And I suppose the first time I came across a heart shaped decision during those early years in my late teens was in 1975, and I'd spent the night sleeping rough on Victoria Station, and. I got up in the morning and I thought to myself, right, I'm going to find myself a job and somewhere to live today because I don't want to sleep there again. And luckily, there were a lot of pubs around that area and I already had the skills of working behind the bar. So I went down Victoria Street and first pub I went into, they didn't want to know. The second pub I went into... The gentleman said to me, oh, he said, he said, I'm not looking for anybody, he said, but my friend round the corner, I think he's looking for staff. So I went into this pub and a man called John Daveron looked me up and down and he said, yes, yeah, I'll give you a job. He said, you're looking for somewhere to live as well. And I said, yes. And he said, yeah, he said, we can do that. He said, um, I said, well, can I go and get my stuff? And um, went and got, went back to Victoria Station, got my stuff out of the left luggage locker, and I went back to his pub, which is now called the Grafton Arms in Strutton Ground, Victoria, in Westminster, in London, and started work for him. 
Now, it wasn't until many years later when I contacted his wife after, unfortunately, he died. I wanted to thank them for what they did for me. And I found out that John had grown up in an orphanage in Ireland and he'd come to London in search of work when he was a young man and he'd got into the catering and hospitality trade and he decided that he was going to help people that were less fortunate than him and he pretty much did that all his life but I was one of the people that he helped. So that was, a, that was the first time I was the beneficiary of a heart-shaped decision. And then while I was working for them, I the police caught up with me for some of the stuff I'd done while I was having my life of petty crime. And I spent some time in Borstal. And I suppose that, you know, the second heart-shaped decision was when my prison officer sat down with me, and Mr Taylor, his name was, and we used to call him Tinker Taylor. And I always refer to him as Tinker Taylor when I speak about him. And he sat me down and had this conversation with me. And he said, Frosty, he said, you're not a criminal. He said, you shouldn't be here. You really need to think about what you're doing with your life because you're not like some of the lads that come here. We know by the time they get to us, there's not much we can do for them. He said, you're not like that. He said, so go and have a think about who you want to be and what you want to do. He said, because you need to get out of here and have a different life to what you've been having. And I went and sat on my bed in the dormitory and I thought about what he'd said and I thought, right, he's, this is an opportunity for me. Now, he didn't have to have that conversation with me. And, OK, it was part of his job, but he didn't have to do it. I didn't see much of that sort of thing going on there. And... Um, you know, I, I thank him for that, and he made you know he made me make the heart-shaped decision as well that I wasn't going to get involved in petty crime anymore. And then John Daverham, bless his heart, he had actually kept my job open for me for when I came out of Borstal, even though he knew what I had done. He he was still happy to give me a chance to redeem myself, and I went back to work for him and his wife for several years after that, actually, and. Um, yeah, I don't know what I would have done without that man. Without that man that had a very, very big heart. And his wife too, who's still alive and I'm still in contact with her. Then it, come, it comes to 1979 when I was diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer. And I'm skipping forward a little bit because I could talk about this for hours and people don't have hours to listen to things. So... I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. I'd got myself back on my feet again, was in a relationship, had a job on the railway, and I'd started this job six months earlier, and I was diagnosed with cancer, and I had to ring work and tell them that I wasn't going to be in for quite some time. And, you know, I was going to... I thought it might be a few months. It turned out to be 15 months before I was signed off as ready to go back to work. And my manager... At British Rail, as it was then, said to me, very sorry to hear that, Graham. Bearing in mind, I'd only been there for a few months, and he said, your job will be here when you get through this. He said, unfortunately, you haven't been here long enough, we can't pay you, but he said, your job will be here when you get better. And that was a huge weight off my mind, because I didn't want to have to start looking for another job when I was recovering from cancer. So I went back to that job, in fact, 
1980, and I, I stayed with that. I stayed there till 2003. That was a heart-shaped decision. That guy did not have to do that. 1982, the relationship I was in that took me through my cancer survival journey had broken up. I was starting again once again. I've started again quite a few times in my life. And I remember moving into a flat in south-west London in Tooting. Top floor of the house, £30 a week rent. Goodness knows how much that would cost now. And I moved in and went to work that day. Got home about nine o'clock in the evening from my railway shift. And I was just unlocking the door and the chap who lived in the flat below came out of his door and he said, oh, hello, he said, uh, would you like to come down for a cup of tea? And looking back on that, that was a heart-shaped decision because I'd just started yet again a new life. And he, did, he didn't have to do that, you know. He didn't do it to everybody in the building. So and it, that started a friendship that took me in lots of different directions. And I'm still in touch. I'm still in touch with that guy today, 1982, 2020. I'm still, I'm still in touch with him. So, um, yeah, you know, that was, that was a heart-shaped decision. Let's, you know, let's give this guy a bit of a welcome. How many people these days, when you move into a new building or a new house, invite you round for a cup of tea? Not very many. And... Then it's not, a lot of the rest of it is really sort of career stuff. Um, so in 1984, I'd gone back to work. Obviously, I was working on the railway as a steward in the restaurant cars on the trains from London to Scotland. And um, one day, we used to do a spare shift, so you had to go in and basically see if you were needed. And there was one of the chief stewards called Jimmy, he was a likeable kind of guy, and not everybody that worked on the trains in those days was likeable, but this guy was. And I was on a spare shift that day and hanging around hoping to get a job. And um, he said to me, he said, hello, young man. He said, um, do you fancy a day's work? And I said, yes, please. And uh, he was a bright, sparky kind of guy, and he, I could see that he wasn't, wasn't scared of getting his hands dirty. And... Um, he didn't have to take me out with his team because I was actually an extra extra crew member. He, he just took me out with him because, I don't know, maybe that was a heart-shaped decision too. And um, he became like a mentor to me, really. And uh, when I eventually got promoted, I worked with him for about 18 months and learned a lot about how to run a team from him. And when I eventually got promoted myself, I thought I can now put all that stuff into effect that I learned from Jimmy. But that original offer of taking me out with him on his train was, for me, a heart-shaped decision. He didn't have to do that. He could have left me there, and who knows, I would, might not, ne I might never have worked with him again and had that experience of learning from somebody who was so good at actually running a team. And so thank you to him. And then a few years later, in the in the late 1980s, I was working on the British Rail charter train fleet. And we used to have, uh, we used to, 
be chartered by companies and it was re- yeah it was a really good job actually I mean you were never at home but that didn't matter to me because I was a single guy and uh, I enjoyed the work I enjoyed my work was probably about three quarters of my life at that point and I, I enjoyed it and my team leader left unexpectedly and I think he had a nervous breakdown but things like that weren't talked about in the late 1980s and uh, so about two weeks later, my boss rang me up and said, would you be interested in taking on the job? And that was my first promotion, really, permanent promotion in 1988. So I became the chief steward on the intercity charter train fleet, which was favourably compared by some people with the Orient Express. And... He didn't have to give me the job. In fact, I was the youngest member of the team and all the other people on that team were older and more experienced than me, but none of them actually wanted the job. I don't think he asked any of the others before he got to me, but he wanted me to take that role. And um, I did it for about 18 months and really thoroughly enjoyed it and had a great time, made a lot of money, went to the Caribbean on holiday and all that kind of thing. But... That was, for me, a heart-shaped decision. I don't know. He saw something in me, maybe. And then one of the biggest ones, really, was uh, I used to work for a company called GNER, which was the the rail company that took over from British Rail on the East Coast Main Line. And by this time, I was the chief steward on the Scottish Pullman, which was the train from London to Glasgow, eight o'clock train every morning. And, you know, the railways got privatised and, uh, you know, we were a little bit scared about what was going to happen. And we were actually quite lucky. We got a good company that took us over. And uh, the chief executive's name was Christopher Garnett. And uh, he was, without doubt, the most inspirational man that I ever worked for in my life. And nobody could supersede that even now um everybody that ever worked with him says that about him and i've been working on the scottish pool for about four years at that point nine from about 1992 it was 1996 my marriage had recently broken up which is another story altogether but um he used to travel up to up to York where our company head office was on our train quite regularly and you know he was a, he was a, a nice a nice guy and one day he said to me he said Graham he said, can I have a word with you and uh, in those days you thought you know if the top boss wanted to have a word with you you thought to yourself hmm, I wonder if I've done something wrong so I said yes I said I'll be with you in a minute sir I said I'm just um doing whatever I was doing it was very busy I was a hands-on part of the team, so I wasn't just uh, wandering around doing nothing. And so I said to him, after about five minutes, I said, yes, I said, uh, you wanted to have a word with me? And he said, yes. He said, "Um, I'm really impressed with the service that your team deliver and uh, the way you work together. He said, said, we've got some, um, we're putting together a new training team. He said, in the next few months, he said, because we're going to be taking on 400 extra staff over the next two years and we want to give them some really good training. He said, would you be interested in taking on a role with that, uh, within that team? And I said, um, 
Does that mean I've got to get up and speak in front of people? And he said, well, yes, it does. He said, but we can give you that skill. He said, what we can't do is duplicate the experience that you've got over the years that you've been working here. So um, I, I said, well, OK, I said, yes. I'll. He said, obviously, I can't just give you the job. Uh, he said, um, but so he said, there'll be some uh, a job advert coming out in the next couple of weeks. He said, will you apply for it? So I said, yes. And I did. And I can remember going, you know, for the interview and doing a presentation. I had no idea how to do a presentation in those days and no idea whatsoever. But I still managed to impress the people who were doing the interviews and I was offered the position. And um, that's how I got into learning and development. Now, for me, that was a heart-shaped decision on his part. He saw something in me and decided that he wanted... And he wanted to give me an opportunity and I took that opportunity and I ran with it and I ran with it. And some of the work I did while I was part of that team, I'm still, you know, it's still some of the best work I've ever done. So I think that hopefully explains a little bit about, you know, some of the heart-shaped decisions. I did allude uh, to my marriage breakup uh, in that conversation or in that monologue um, a little bit. And... Um, so I'll just cover that as well, because I think uh, sometimes you have to make a heart-shaped decision to move away from something. And it's not always a, it's not always a positive decision in my, in my experience. And I was explaining this to somebody the other day, and I said that getting married, strangely enough, for me, was not a heart-shaped decision. I married the wrong person for the wrong reasons and I knew in my heart at the time that that was the case but I stuck with it and I went through with the marriage and I remember my wedding day as if I was appearing in a film of somebody else's life almost and so I you know I, I really took a, a detour for a few years which you know, in some respects, obviously, I hadn't taken, but then a lot of positive did come out of it as well. And after five years, I had to take the decision to leave. And that was the heart-shaped decision, was to actually go back to the life that I'd had before, which actually wasn't that bad, you know. And so, um, but I had got to the point in that relationship, and that, I think, helps me to explain heart-shaped decisions a little bit better for me, for the, the ones that I make. I had got to the point in that relationship where I was unhappy about 99% of the time. And I think, you know, if you're in a relationship, whether it be a personal relationship, a working relationship, whatever type of relationship it is, if you're in a relationship where you are unhappy 99% of the time, then you either need to change something or get out. And I couldn't change anything about that relationship. I couldn't change the other person in that relationship. So I decided I had to leave. And many years later, she told me that I had made the right decision. And that was, that, that was, that was quite validating. So that's a little bit more about heart-shaped decisions. And uh, I, hope, I, hope that, I hope that's been useful to you. If you'd like to contact me, you can do that. You can call me on uh, 07766916317. Or you can email me at graham at grahamfrost.com. I'm also looking for guests to appear on 
the Heart Shaped Decisions podcast. I've got a YouTube channel, and guess what that's called, Graham Frost's Heart Shaped Decisions, with a few videos and interviews on there that I've recorded over the last few months. So thank you very much for listening, and please look out for the next episode of the Heart Shaped Decisions podcast.